Hello, I'm David Hughes and this is Rogue Commentary, the podcast that brings you brand new audio commentaries for interesting movies by the people who made them. This episode is sponsored by boutique Blu-ray label Plumeria Pictures. Find them at plumeriapics.co.uk and use code ROGUE10 at checkout to get 10% off store-wide. In this episode, which I know has been a long time coming, I'm very excited to welcome Jill Givargazian, co-writer, director and producer of 2020's brilliant Kansas City set horror film The Stylist, in which a profoundly disturbed hairstylist, played by the phenomenal Najara Townsend, gives very special hair treatment to her clients. Eat your heart out, Sweeney Todd. I've been a fan of this understated film since I first saw it, and although there's a fantastic special edition Blu-ray out there with commentaries and all kinds of extras, I was thrilled when Jill agreed to provide this brand new audio commentary recorded about three years after the film was shot. As always, you can listen like this as a podcast, or for best results, cue it up to the film, pausing on the first frame after whatever logos might be there. Jill will tell you when to press play. And here we go. Three, two... One, play. Hello, everyone. My name is Jill Gavargazian, and I am the director, co-writer, and one of the many producers of The Stylist. Thank you for listening to this commentary. It's exciting to record a new commentary almost three years exactly since we shot the film. We shot it in 2020 of January and February. This opening shot of our lead actress, Najara Townsend, I spent a lot of time considering. I'm a big preparer, a big cinematography, like planner. Um, I wanted it to start on Claire instead of the traditional shot would be to open on a wide in a scene to show you the whole situation. But I was like, this film is about Claire and it's my hope to pull our viewers onto her side. So let's start right smack dab on her face. And then it was also our plan and ended up being what we did to mirror that in the very final shot. I love films that do that in some sort of way like it's a a shot looking straight at her as well but in a wildly different emotional state a lot of people already know this but i am a hairstylist i still do hair full time and i work in the salon you are looking at right now it is called bobber shop here in kansas city if you're ever in town come by and say you're a fan of the film we will love it <laughs> so i'm newer to working at this salon i've worked there for over three years now and we shot the short film in a different salon that had a very similar color palette and vibe and, but I knew for the feature we needed more space. And not to mention the short film, the, the salon we shot the short film in does not exist anymore. So when I first came into Bobber Shop to seeking a new spot to work, I was like, oh my gosh, this would be perfect. They had these vintage gold hair dryers, which you can see in the background of this scene. Um, 
there they are. And, you know, just the, the mix of the aesthetic that Chelsea Brown, the owner of the salon, already had going on, which was, I felt like, a mix of antique and modern while being simple. And the color palette was perfect, being browns and army green and gold. I felt like it already fit into Claire's world so well. And the color and design is something we spent serious, serious time on. That magazine right there, I have to brag, was created by Dustin Blakeman. He did a lot of design work for us, like uh, graphic design work. But yeah, he created that magazine so that we could show it because, you know, we can't open a real people magazine, for instance, and show stuff without the right to. So he created all these ads because that was a big moment. The line she says there, we all want what we don't have looking at the model in the advertisement is, you know, really like stating our theme quite literally. And to be able to do something like that in a low budget film is huge. So hell yeah to B Dustin for doing that for us. Even It even fooled our editor, John Pata. He was putting the scene together and he emailed us and he's like, you guys, we cannot use this, you know, like this is a real magazine. And we're like, no, it's not. That's how awesome of a job he did. Completely fooled our editor. Which, speaking of editing, when we were working on this scene after shooting it, we realized it needed to be tightened up quite a bit. You know, as the, as the thing to the opening of the film, we're trying to draw you guys in. I realized I got a bit too talky and I knew we needed to get to the horror. But there's a lot of little, you know, little subtleties laced into this moment. And I really wanted to, you know, show what was unique about the relationship between a client and a hairstylist, especially even a client you just met and how much they might divulge to you. And sometimes how people like this might think of you as, you know, beneath them and unimportant in a way. I can never get over how beautiful the actress getting her hair washed. Her makeup is like classic Hollywood it's just so perfect. She looks like a porcelain doll laying there. And that is thanks to incredible hair and makeup artist Courtney Jones, who I've worked with for years and years and years. And this film was quite a lot of work for her. And I feel like her position, you know, is not talked about as much in filmmaking and it deserves the praise. It's it's a lot of work. It's like, you know, she might have to change the lead actor's look five times in one day and we're like can you do this in you know like five minutes <laughs> um so it's incredible here's our classic horror 
credit scene. We were excited to do like this makes me think of a lot of the horror movies I grew up watching where the credits wouldn't start until, you know, like almost 10 minutes into the movie. And I absolutely love how romantic they are with the subtle fades and transitions, which is has something we established in the short film of the stylus that we carried on here. And in pre-production, me and a uh, Director of photography Robert Stern sat down and really established a language for the camera and what everything would mean so that we had rules and we would know when to, you know, use certain things. Like the slow-mo moments we would refer to as a Claire trance. And these were moments when she was getting lost in the hair. You know, the thing that she loves and it's not... Literally, she loves hair. It's just something that provides her an escape from her inner turmoil. The same way we watch a movie for escape. She plays with hair. I have to say this scene was challenging for us to approach from the start because we knew we were essentially redoing the short film with a few differences, but we loved how we did the short film, but we were like, how can we do this again and almost pay tribute to what we already did, but take it up another level. And when we were working with our sound team here, like these kind of moments, and she's unrolling this scissor pack, we really, we wanted to lean into the to the sound and it, the feeling like you could really feel the scissors open and feel her run her hands across that almost suede material and almost take it to an ASMR place. And here we go, time to get bloody. <laughs> Okay, so we worked with Colleen Kaufman, who I've been working with on all my short films since I started making movies. She did our special effects makeup. And her assistant, Philip Spruill, they're an awesome team. To create these scalpings, it's an, I can't even be, where to begin to tell you how layered this is? Literally, in so many ways is it layered. Um, to create this effect, it's, month, uh, weeks of work for Colleen ahead of time before we shoot. So that means we have to cast the actor in that role a decent amount of time ahead so that we can, you know, match their hair, find a wig. Also, I take that into account when we're considering who we're going to cast. Will we be able to find the hair? And so then I have to hand it off to Colleen. Often we're making at least two in case we need to do it twice in case there's a huge mistake and something gets ripped or you never know. And so we pr always prepare backups and we almost never use them. It's funny, but you got to do it if you can afford to. And yeah, so it's, it's crazy involved. She puts fake skin onto the wigs. She feeds some of the hair through the fake skin. Then she creates these bald caps, adds muscles to them, 
once you, you know you apply that to the actor it's like the bald cap then there's fake blood then there's tubing so we can have actual blood dripping out of it and then you put the scalp she created with the wig on top of that and so when we actually pull it off on camera there's a lot of variables and we're not sure what's going to happen once it starts pulling back like she's you know off camera or phil is pumping the blood out of the tubes as she, as claire najara townsend is slowly pulling the hair back and we're all off camera like praying that it's magic because you just that's the that's the fun and terrifying thing of practical effects is every time you do it you have no idea what's going to happen <laughs> and if it's going to you know land where you hope or not we were lucky all our effects i think ended up turning out badass we definitely had challenges when we did it but in the end i'm incredibly happy with them I ranted so long about the special effects. Here we are already at Claire's house, which I have to tell you, this house was like magic, like it was meant to be when we found it. You know, a lot of this film feels that way, and it's it's, it's so special to me. It means so much to me on a personal level. Oh, my God. Um, but this house is this old historic mansion <clears throat> here in Kansas City, and I met the owner through the owner of my salon Chelsea was a huge help in so many ways on this film and I was just looking at it actually for a different location in the movie maybe the later kill the last kill which spoiler alert is yours truly um so I went to see this house and I get there and I'm just like jaw to the ground I know when I'm and I'm taking pictures and I know when I show my other producers Robert and Sarah, that they are going to lose their shit. <laughs> and yeah, they were like, okay, that's Claire's house. And yeah, I always imagined her being in an old house. I imagined it was a house she inherited from her grandmother. But I didn't imagine it being like a a mansion, like a Victorian Norman Bates mansion. Um, but we couldn't say no to that opportunity. It's freaking beautiful. So much work went into the design of this scene. I mean, the scene was like five years in the making. Maybe three or four. <laughs> but since we made the short film, you know, we, we created the same set in the short film, but a much, much smaller version of it. The same, you know, my same cinematographer and same production designer, Robert and Sarah, who are my also main creative producers on the film. They have been invested in this project since the short, you know, creatively and have been collecting items for this scene specifically or this locate, you know, set because we go back to the basement many times, which we affectionately call Claire's Lair. This is like her, her safe space, which is also why we chose to lean into the warm colors. The warm colors became Claire's colors in a very like natural way, but then it all made sense and had so much meaning. In the end, we realized, you know, this is where she goes to feel safe, to escape. And, you know, this is like the pl one place we see her smile. And 
You know, so we wanted to feel kind of like an opposite of how you typically see a serial killer's lair where it's like dingy and you know, like cold colors and just really just bad, cold, you know, lonely, lonely feelings. Um, there's definitely lones. Uh, Claire's an incredibly lonely character, but we wanted that her lair to really be special, to really be warm and gothic and romantic. And I just love it so much. And here we are with my Brian De Palma split screen. This is not how we wrote it. Um, we wrote the f scenes just to, you know, be back to back, but they were intended to mirror each other to show, you know, both Claire and Olivia's characters doing the same things, but seeing how they, you know, experience those same things very differently because of their lives. Here are a couple more of these mini, uh, Claire trances. She gets stuck staring at people and, you know, details about people. I have to tell you a funny little thing here. That treadmill with the bow on it, we were shooting this right after that Peloton ad went viral in a very bad way. And we were so worried that it was going to be taken that way. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Bria Grant, I have been dying to work with her. I met her through another project, which we would still love to make. And once it came down to us finally doing the Kickstarter for the stylist, I reached out to her about playing the role of Olivia. Because I just, ever since I met her, I couldn't stop picturing her in that role. A lot of Claire's design, um, you might notice that she's always wearing, you know, that mustard yellow, the gold I was talking about in her lair. She has a very specific color palette that her wardrobe was informed by her house, the salon, you know, anything in her world has a very specific look, you know, these golds, greens, browns think a very 1970s color palette um we wanted we leaned into that so heavy and really liked the idea of trying to create this feeling of claire was like almost from another time so especially when she was in scenes like this in the real world around normal people that she would stand out in a way that was really special like not like she's like a freak show at all but like you know, the rest of the world is mo more modern. There's a more cool color palette. Everyone else, especially Olivia's character, is always in cool colors, always in a modern uh, vibe. So that when we put Claire in those scenes, she really stands out because she does not, you know, she's not part of that palette. She's special. 
and that really started for me as something just I designed, you know, Olivia's color palette, you know, her main color being purple and Claire's main color being like a yellow gold because yellow cance cancels out purple in the if you are know anything about color theory, which I only do because of being a hairstylist. Um, so a lot of that goes into the, you know, into the character stuff and the doppelganger theme and the idea that Claire wishes she could be Olivia and that they are really the same while, while being opposites, you know, like while uh, Claire might view them as being opposites and that, Olivia has this dream ideal life really they're also very the same that was a, a deep a deep theme that we tried to bring out in a lot of ways whether that was through like you know a split screen or certain ways we shot a scene or you know using color to accentuate that And that was something we brought from the short. The yellow versus the purple. And so we knew with that we needed to get a super modern location for Bria's character right here where she works. We were so lucky to have this office which was owned at the time by our, by our other production company, Method Media, Chris Knitter and Jordan Rio. I absolutely loved how we could see downtown Kansas City through the windows. Oh, here's another one of those fake magazines Dustin created. Love it. There's a lot of personal stuff in these scenes, especially in Claire's house. That kitchen is full of knickknacks that were my great-grandmother's, my mom's, stuff from my family, stuff from Sarah Sharp, our production designer's family as well. I have to say I had never done driving scenes until this. It's quite the ordeal. <laughs> oh my, so this moment, this, you know, this split screen whole sequence from when we first introduced Olivia up till now was this whole, whole thing I ripped off from a sequence in Brian De Palma's Sisters where he used it to reveal how close two characters were to each other. And I was like, that is such a cool way to use split screen. Like it has a, a, a punchline to it. So that's what we did right here. And this was very hard and <laughs> very exciting, but very hard. Dun, dun, dun. So excited. So excited about that.
that's my order if I ever go to get a drink at a coffee shop. I'm not much of a coffee drinker, but I love chai tea. Here's another one of those trances. I kind of wanted to feel like that opening scene. Robert and I, our DP, spent so much time, like I said, creating a language for the film, which included, since the short, using mirrors as much as possible. You know, we shot either over the shoulder through the mirror or use the camera literally as a mirror. And we wanted to do that as much as possible in the film because as a hairstylist, really when you're sitting there with your client, your entire conversation might be through the mirror. Like how, you know, you're always both looking forward. And so there is that disconnection. They're not looking directly at each other, which I think is something that's unique and different about an, any other kind of conversation. There's something to that, something to the disconnection. I'm such a nerd that the dress Claire is wearing in this scene is actually the dress from the short film, which I made sure to keep. We still had multiple copies of. <laughs> I just knew it needed to be somewhere special in the future and make a comeback. Here's a great example of how hard it was for our hairstylist, Courtney. Or not, you know, just, I mean, how much work she had to do. Because not only was she, you know, styling the hair behind the scenes of the actors, she's also, you know, like, help doing the hairstyle that we're seeing on camera. Um, and we're having to do it in phases as the conversation's going. It was quite a thing to organize when it came to continuity. And in the salon, if you can see, there's little hints of kind of both of their lives. Like, it has a lot of the older feeling and the colors of Claire's world, but then we've put, sprinkled in the purple, you know, kind of on the edges of the frame. There's the purple lights on the cactus, the purple lights around a plant in the front of the shop. These little things kind of show where their worlds come together. And here in this scene is where we first see 
Olivia show up with this purple scarf that kind of becomes something you can literally follow throughout the film as Claire steals it. <laughs> that hug right there is one of my favorite moments. Najara played that like a freaking genius actress. She looks so incredibly uncomfortable and perfectly awkward. <laughs> I could not have dreamed to work with a more talented, perfect human being to become Claire. I mean, just even a moment as small as this, she says so much. She doesn't have to say anything. And this is my PSA to the world. Najara Townsend should be an Oscar-winning actor at this point. Somebody huge needs to cast her in something immediately. This scene was quite something because you know, I'm talking to Najar about how for Claire, you know, she's finally getting to walk into this place that like is almost like walking into a palace in her eyes. Like she's going to get to see the inside of the most perfect person's house, like one of her favorite people in the world while trying to obviously contain that. And that's just how good of an actress Najara is, that she can say so much just through her expressions, her subtle, subtle expressions. Oh, and this line, you know, Claire, the savior of my wedding. I've realized it's in the film, I think at least three times. And it's not something that we set out to say like, this should happen three times. But I do know three is a great number for something specific to happen. I think it has a special, something special to it. And oh, I just love that she's introduced that way. She, you know, first uh, Olivia says that to her. And then she introduces her husband to her that way. And then she introduces Claire to all her friends as the savior. And... um it's also quite ironic when we know what is going to actually happen at the wedding. So when we were looking for this house, we you know, knew we needed something modern, like I was saying, to represent how her, make her house feel wildly different than Claire's, you know, it's so it's bright and white and but inviting and friendly This wedding dress was created from scratch for the film. We actually had to make two of them for both characters.
these these shots, these through the mirror, you know, the the stacking of the characters. A lot of this is really inspired by Igmar Bergman's persona. You know, here we are using mirrors again wherever we can. Is there even a mirror behind Najara? Another reflection. I felt like for Claire it was especially a great um, device to use as a, in a metaphorical way because Claire is so disconnected from anyone. No one really knows her because, I mean, she doesn't even know her. You know, people have asked me questions about Claire where I have to answer, and I know it might sound insane to some people because, I mean, I created her so I can decide things about her, but there are things I don't know because I don't think she knows, so how could I know? You know, she's not, she's not that self-aware yet. You know, these scenes are really where I hope to give some insight into especially Claire's background without it being, you know, over the top with exposition and explaining where she came from. I know that can be a, a, a complaint about any film, you know, not truly understanding why or where a character comes from, but I, I wanted to leave it open enough for interpretation, but also leave some decent hints, especially through this conversation here. Also here, as far as how, when it came to the writing and the, you know, what's being said here, you know, this is a huge moment for Claire. I feel like this is a moment where Claire feels like, or she learns, you know, that, that Olivia went through something very similar to her as a child that, you know, that she, you know, that her father also abandoned her. And for Claire, this is huge. This is a, for her, like a moment where she sees like, oh my gosh, this is someone like me. Like she's my understand me. I've never, I've never had that. I've never experienced that kind of connection. So that's why she decides to open up in this scene. She's never done that before, and so for her, that's huge. Which it is uh, part of our reason for why she does what happens after this scene. <laughs> She's quite emotionally um, distraught after opening up in such a way. Which for her is like, soul-bearingly embarrassing. This scene also couldn't have turned out more like a dream come true. Two incredibly talented actors nailing this, like, I don't even know how long, over five-minute long scene with no cuts. Also, this one is... 
completely ripped off from a scene in Bergman's persona, the way that the act, you know, the two women are stacked on top of each other and Olivia keeps covering up Claire's face and they're almost, almost like they're becoming, you're seeing how they are one here is kind of like the, the pretentious visual I was going for. <laughs> I can make fun of myself, but that was, that's the idea here with how he stacked and blocked them. Yeah, see, not only did she share, but she got emotional in front of someone. You know, someone told her her mom might be proud of her. This is like, you know, panic at attack inducing type of a situation. And I'm someone who deals with serious anxiety. So that like all of that, all the anxiety you see in Claire's character, that's, that's very personal. And it's been very special actually, like moments like this in the, in the movie, many people have commented that they relate to this, like, you know, beating themselves up and examining over and over a conversation they had. It might have even been, you know, something you said weeks ago and, you know, it comes back in your mind and, and it just is like, it's painful to think about. I think a lot of us relate to that. I was very excited about that teardrop. We all like screamed after we yelled cut. I was also very excited to do those in the you know, the rear view mirror shots. They remind me of a lot of classic thrillers that I love like Nightcrawler for instance. And this trickery we did in the window was a lot of fun. You know, like I said, we really spent a lot of time on the color palette and the meaning behind it when we used certain things and here in any scene where we're, you know, leading up into some, you know, violence or a kill, we really leaned into the greens and the oranges, which I feel like have a natural gritty feeling to them. And something interesting to point out about the kills is you'll notice if you, I'm sure you've already seen the movie if you're listening to this, but each kill gets progressively more bloody, more haphazard, more messy, and we even shoot them in in similar ways. You know, like the opening kill we shot from a very wide shot. We weren't doing like you know, like gratuitous close-ups just for the fun of it. And it all goes the w the way that she hopes, the way that all her kills go. And we get to the second one, as you're about to see, it goes very wrong. 
and she doesn't even get the hair. And she, you know, it, our final kill that we see on camera, not the final, but the, you know, my kill is even messier. It's like completely unplanned, just a total stranger on the street. Um, the, the kills were meant to mirror her psychological state, Claire's psychological state. Really, there's m so many things within the film that are going on the same journey as Claire's mind, you know, this downward spiral. Each kill is showing that. Each one is showing how she's getting more and more out of control, more and more messy, um, more apt to get caught. Because we know before the film started, she's clearly done this for quite a few years and everything's been fine. But the presence of Olivia in her life has sent her off the rails. So yeah, not only do the kills mirror that arc, but so does what happens in her lair in the basement. You know, in the first scene, it's it's like a, a saving grace. Then she goes on to try to lock it up and close that part of her life up. Then later when she goes back to it to try to find solace, she can't find it. And then she goes out onto the streets for a kill in desperation to find that escape again. <clears throat> and here we go. Can I tell you all these fancy camera moves were not easy. <laughs> but that was another rule we made. Every kill would happen from over top. I am a huge fan of the overhead shot, the bird's eye view. We thought we'd have the the scarf there play tricks on her. When writing, Eric Havens and I knew that we had to bring back this iconic line from the short film, What the Fuck, Claire? So we had no idea... But the first time the short film played and that line was said, everyone like cheered and laughed and it became like the thing. <laughs> so we knew we had to bring it back. That was my tribute to like the psycho moment in a lot of movies where the killer, you know, like I feel like that is a trope. We see them go crazy stabbing more than necessary from that angle I was geeked <laughs> these recordings really became you know, a big part of the story or like the idea of her listening to it to to not feel alone and how creepy that was. This actor, Jimmy Dara, is freaking incredible. 
just a teeny tiny role, but I knew he would nail that moment. I absolutely am ear to ear smiles when I'm in a crowd watching the movie and they laugh at that moment. It's one of my favorite little things in the movie. <laughs> You know, back in the lair, we kind of viewed this like, you know, like I was saying, this is her trying to hang, hang up her addiction, put it, put it away in the closet. When we wrote this scene, I had no idea we would end up with a house that had this epically beautiful old cellar door. And so it took quite the rewrite, actually, to, to imagine it out here, which was a whole thing. <laughs> I don't even, maybe I should tell this story. Okay, so, you know, I wrote it like it would be a normal house where the basement would kind of have, you know, just have a door that was inside the house. And so all of this would be happening inside, and the door really wasn't anything that special. It was just a normal door that she was locking up and then throwing the key away. Um, once I saw this house, of course, with this huge cellar door, everyone was in love with it. And we had to totally reimagine like where, what does she do with the key? How does she lock it up? It was, I made it a much more complicated thing in my own head, looking back at it, <laughs> because now I'm like, all you had to do was change a couple things. I acted like it was, you know, melting down the whole story in some way you know i'm an artist i can be dramatic okay <laughs> i haven't had a chance to talk about my baby girl pepper the chihuahua that is my dog one of two chihuahuas i have my other one tina is jealous she's gonna have to be in the next film The text messages were definitely a challenge of how we would approach how they would appear on the film. And it's something we had to think about before we shot because I knew I didn't want to show literal inserts of the phone with text messages on it. You know, because in our world, in our modern world these days, like that's ha more than half of how anyone communicates. We don't call people on the phone if we're just going to have a quick conversation, especially as I am a hairstylist and I know people just text me and set up an appointment like this moment right here, you know, she's eager, hoping it's Olivia. Nope. It's just Gary wants a haircut. Um, so I wanted it to be realistic in that way. Like that's how we communicate, but I didn't want it to feel like techie because this is not a tech movie or like, that's not the feeling of it. I didn't want it. I don't know. So I studied all kinds of films and how they approached it. And I decided I loved how insecure the TV show on HBO and Euphoria handled it, which is kind of just like how we are with this simple subtitle and how the name changes like once they send it, like it'll say Claire's typing this and then once she's sent it, it will say like to Olivia. Um, I actually think it's the other way around, sorry. <laughs> 
our giallo locker room in the salon. Which is inspired from a real light. There's a neon outside the window. I'm only saying that because just with this film, we decided to make a rule where we weren't going to do extreme giallo lighting like you know pinks and purples unless they had a real um, source where they were coming from. Like, or an explainable source within the scene. Like in the salon, I said, there's the neon in the back. Or when the scene we're about to approach, the dance club is like, you know, we were, we were like, okay, here's where we're going to go full on, you know, Argento, crazy. Neon lights everywhere. Poor Claire. I mean, she looks absolutely stunning in everything. <laughs> there's lots of little trinkets in this scene that mean a lot to me. Like there's a hair dryer on your far right, right there. That's an antique hair dryer I've had for a very long time from the 50s. Here we are in downtown Kansas City. I can't tell you how much pride I felt to be able to show off the city. And yeah, like I said, here we decided we were going to lean into fun colors. And so I wanted to create kind of like a classic vibe downstairs at the club where we did the, you know, the purple pink blue which is you know i feel like what we all think when we think of giallo suspiria type stuff and then up in the vip we had that green and gold thing which is completely inspired by john wick okay i am a nerd 100 <laughs> percent a john wick color ripoff. Directing a scene like this was a dream come true. I've never done anything this involved with like, you know, 50 plus extras in a huge place downtown with music and like, uh, there's so many layers to this with, you know, multiple actors with speaking roles. There's Oh my God. Oh my God. So much to it. And we learned that night that Bria is an incredible fake drunk actor. Or maybe she was drinking that, that whiskey right there. And I don't, I don't know. I wasn't paying attention. <laughs> oh, but really she's freaking incredibly funny. And so believably drunk. And then Najara's face when she's like, let's go dance, is like pure terror masked with a smile. <laughs> I had the time of my life shooting this. I want to also throw out there that I am a huge hip hop fan. I want to direct rap music videos. And so, yeah, this was like a little fantasy moment of like, we're making a 
music video. We we shot way too much of this footage, in fact, because we were having way too much fun. <laughs> but I really love how John ended up editing this scene, you know, and using this spinning to you know, show what Claire's going through in this, the anxiety she's feeling, trying to fit in. Oh, I just, I love it. This moment's great. This is our other big, long take with these two actors where we you know, get to know them more. It's a little more intimate. I love how Claire's constantly trying to leave, but Olivia just won't let her. I described this scene to my DP and gaffer, uh, Dave Risner, which he, he was like, that's what I thought right when I said it. Um, as like, I'm like, this is like our mafia boss vibe. Like, you know, these are our two important characters. They're in like the back of the club, sitting at the booth, having a super important conversation while everyone else is like, you know, having fun doing their thing. And so I really yeah, saw it as this like long two shot looking straight at them, you know, while they talked looking out. And we, we didn't know if it would work because we were like, is it going to be too weird that they're not, they're not literally looking at each other during this conversation? But I absolutely love it. And we were very lucky to have a Kansas City-made booze, you know, straight up sponsor these, sponsor us and help us with the film quite a bit. What you see right there on the right of the screen is some Rieger whiskey, and they are a big distillery here in Kansas City, and it is delicious. And we were, we felt like a badass being able to show it off in the movie. You know, I've talked so much about the wardrobe and the look and everything, and I have not mentioned Hallie Sharp, our costume designer. You know, she literally took my you know, hopes and vision and dreams for this and, like, knocked it out of the park. Like, she did what she accomplished. I don't even understand how it was possible with, you know, the resources she was given, the amount of money we had for that. And, you know... It's a dream. I'm just thinking about it because I absolutely love how both of the girls look in this scene, the yellow dress and Bria's white pantsuit. And I love just how different that is. And it's like, I just think it's badass. We really came out with a cool idea for how Olivia's character would dress. Like she would have this power behind her, but also it would still be fun. And um, yeah, just nailed it. Everyone looks so incredible. This was so fun to shoot. We have the camera rigged above Claire. They're like slowly tilting. Can I tell you how hard that was for us to coordinate and block and have the camera move just right? <laughs> and this bathroom scene is kind of like an iconic trope in many, almost like teen movies and horror movies. I mean, even film I wildly love and this scene is definitely inspired by 
the Soska's American Mary has a scene, has like the has the bathroom scene where there's girls talking shit. Um, I love it. This also has some major neon demon influence. There's a, there's a great bathroom scene in that one as well. And this whole whole club scene, we really look to neon demon for influence. This night for Claire has just like plummeted. It's like first she spilled on herself. Then she goes to the bathroom, try to clean it. Then she hears the friends talking shit on her. Then she makes the stain even worse. This is kind of an example of like, you know, every time she kind of, she feels like she's gotten really out of control. Like after she was at Olivia's house earlier when she had the vulnerable conversation, she had to go kill the barista. You know, this is like a similar situation where now she's gotten to a point tonight where you know every time she tries to fit in with other people and it doesn't go as perfect as she hoped, she has to find a way to correct that internally. And so here she is going down her uh, bad path, stalker path. Like I said, these driving scenes were fun to design because they made me think of a lot of classic thrillers. Like, first I said Nightcrawler. That's not that old, but to me it is already a classic because it's so incredible. Also, even like, you know, Taxi Driver inspired this certain shots. and uh, Or even the remake of Maniac has some great driving scenes, some great looks. Oh, and this incredible zoom by our uh, first assistant camera, Francis, nailed this. We weren't even trying to do this as like an actual shot. We were just trying to zoom in, you know, just to get the close-up of it. But the, the move of the zoom itself, we were like, holy shit, that's awesome. <laughs> Can I tell you these guys rigged some crazy cameras to this car? I mean, we had, we did two two drives so at first they rigged it you know on the front and the side and then they moved it all to the back I, I it was a lot and in front is I think our uh, our production manager driving a, one of the cars and I'm in a van behind her trying to watch it on a monitor that's going out every five seconds because of the we don't have any signal <laughs> So we do a lot of this blind. We're just like, hope it looks good when we are done moving and we watch the, you know, playback. Oh my God, something I love here. That girls, girls, girls neon sign you see flashing on the right side of the screen. That is completely CGI by Daniel Del Purgatorio, who's also a writer, director, and an incredibly talented filmmaker. But yeah, for us, he created that sign. I'm a uh, huge strip strip club fan and sex work sex worker ally, and I wanted to have something from that world in this film. So there's a fake strip club on that side of the street. I wish there really was. <laughs> I know it is good because I had someone who lived here in Kansas City ask me where that sign was, and I'm like, okay, we nailed it. 
I'd like to admit to you guys that this sequence was actually much longer at one point. We had a whole sequence where the story was going to kind of break away from Claire for a minute and go inside the apartment with these two actors who are uh, Millie Milan and Ed, Edward Patterson and kind of you know see their interaction for a minute. You know, they're smoking some weed, making out, and then we were going to go back to Claire and kind of like see how she snuck in. But I realized in hindsight, and to be fair, my producers told me this beforehand, um, that it didn't make sense to leave Claire, that never in any other instance had we done that and, you know, left her perspective to go with the victim's perspective. And so I just realized it didn't, you know, it ultimately did not serve the story we were trying to tell. But I always feel really sensitive and bad about it. <laughs> because I'm like, I'm sorry to the actors. It has nothing to do with you. It just, you know, doesn't ultimately make sense with this story. I absolutely love that shot. You know, it's it looks like split screen, but it it's just the the curtain creating the split screen feeling. Starting here, you notice we start to count the days down. You know, it said Monday and the time. That was kind of, we're trying to hope people would realize that that's what she was seeing on her phone when she'd wake up each day. And I feel like that was kind of really mimicking like, you know, something I, you know, I feel like a lot of us have been through. Definitely me, if I'm feeling anxious about something or hearing from somebody specific, you know, I'm, each morning, the first thing I do, I'm probably going to be looking at my phone and hoping I hear from them. Um, so there's this this whole sequence kind of from here until she has a major break. Um, we were trying to build this this kind of tension of, you know, like Claire's on the edge of totally spiraling out of control if she doesn't get some sort of reassurance from Olivia. Claire is someone who doesn't understand boundaries and that's a lot of what's being explored here. <clears throat> this moment was like a dream shot that I loved when she looks over and the client looks at her it just reminds me of something that like Kubrick would do in The Shining it just feels like does she know how could she know there's just 
a feeling I love about it and it wasn't planned and I did not direct her to, for that to happen exactly that way and it was a perfect surprise. So yeah, all these shots each morning, we, we shot them back to back and each morning we, you know, moved the overhead shot. We made it a little more dutched each day to kind of, to, to mirror how she is each day, you know, getting closer and closer to the edge, losing, losing control, losing patience. I'm such a nerd for numbers and six is definitely my favorite number. It's my lucky number that I think I had each morning that she looks at her clock. It ends in a six in some way, <laughs> whether it's 556 or 616 or 726. This is one of my favorite shots of the movie. I wish that we cut this right here. Scene done. Sorry, I'm admitting my, my mistakes. <laughs> That's French Claire. Through this whole sequence, you know, Claire's just, just disassociating more and more and more. We try to do everything we could to help tell that part of the story. And even the color, I feel like it's pulled out more and more throughout the sequence. Every day it's getting more bleak. And we worked with an incredible colorist. His name is Taylor. Taylor Jones. I've worked with him on almost everything I've done. Every time, anytime I can afford him. <laughs> He's so incredibly talented and always just gets what we're going for. On a side note, I want to say how proud I am to show off downtown Kansas City right there in that shot. Everything is lit up red specifically because the Chiefs were about to win the Super Bowl when we shot this in 2020. Our city is very uh, festive, actually. I say it's all red because that stuff will change. Like, say it's pride. There'll be rainbows all over the city, rainbow lights on every building, or something specific going on if the royals are doing well. It'll all be blue. So it's it's a pretty city and a pretty skyline. It's always changing. We really took this scene, which was just written to be in a parking lot. It could be anywhere. It could be in a, a basic boring parking lot but we took this as an opportunity to find a cool parking deck and show off Kansas City make this moment much bigger and more cinematic that way I think also it creates an extra layer of 
loneliness for Claire in the end when Olivia drives away and leaves her there. You know, just this. Not only is she obviously lonely, but to see her standing there by herself amongst this huge city just accentuates the loneliness. But this scene is heartbreaking for me. And we try to manipulate our audience with the camera. We try to make you feel how Claire feels because if you are on her side, this is a sad moment. Because for Claire, this feels like Olivia is telling her, I hate you and never, I never want to see you again. But from Olivia's perspective, she's giving pretty understandable boundaries. Yeah, the, the desperation here is almost too much for me. That's the first scene we shot with Najara and Bria. It's Friday. It's the day before the wedding. The countdown is going faster. <laughs> Shit is not going well. And here we are on Claire's. Like this is like her last attempt to reach out for that rope. It's like I'm going to fall off the edge. And you have a chance to pull me off. But you know. <laughs> like the, I mean that's where Claire is coming from. It is not Olivia's responsibility to know that. Or to pull her off. But that's how she's feeling. Here is like. Okay, I'm gonna. I need. I need that reassurance, or I just don't know what I'm gonna fucking do. Here's a lesson in: we need to learn how to soothe ourselves, how to care for ourselves. Other people cannot fix us. <laughs> This is one of the moments that is shot handheld, if you notice. Um, I'm a very much a fan, personally, of of having very controlled camera work. Like I like to use sticks or a dolly or a crane or, you know, to use something that's not human-operated. I don't often ever, ever do handheld. Um, but I like to use it as a way to... You know, accentuate story and and the moment or the emotion and so we decided to do this that scene that shot static but to do all this close-up of her on the phone handheld to really just show you know how erratic she's feeling like this is like I said her last attempt to reach out for help I mean she doesn't literally say that but that this is her version of doing that and so he wanted it to feel extra frantic compared to the rest of the movie. A very 
cool and unique thing is we actually had Davis, the actor who plays Charlie, there on set that day when we when we shot that conversation. So she didn't have to just use like a recording or have someone else just read it with no emotion. We had the real actor off camera for her to feed off of, which I think makes all the difference. And here is where our spiral kicks into high gear. Our downward spiral, of course. <laughs> Since Claire's up to no good here, we've got our orangey-green lighting coming back. Our composer, Nicholas Ehlert, is a freaking genius. You know, we've been hearing his music all movie, but I finally need to bring it up now that it's it's really a focal point here. Working with him is so special, and you know, he really he really takes this work to heart and puts his soul into it and true creativity. I've worked with him on so many projects and he'll always have different ideas for like, you know, what instruments he should use or how he'll record them so they'll have a specific type of sound. And for this, I sent him a lot of scores that had a, were very elegant and a lot were, you know, done with orchestras and then some that were a little more gritty. And he was like, what if I did something in the middle where I'm using these really gritty instruments that I have in my basement and I do all of it myself, but I'm attempting to make this or orchestral elegant sound with these instruments and through those instruments, they'll have this different feeling. And I loved, I loved the idea. I loved the reason for it. And I just always under, he always understands the emotion and that's what's important when we talked through this whole film because here now we're in a really quiet really awkward part but that's why well it's i'll talk about this during our quiet awkward moment um him and i would sit down and go through the film and discuss what each scene should feel like like what the what feeling the music should mirror and for this movie specifically, we're like, well, the music should always mirror Claire's feelings because everything is about Claire's feelings in this movie. The camera's mirroring her feelings. The music should mirror her feelings as well because we're trying to bring you on a journey with her. Like, you know, we're not obviously shooting it from her perspective, but everything really is from her perspective, if that makes any sense. And so that did provide a challenge, but it made it unique. Like we'd think of the stalking scenes where she's following people in her car and we'd be like, well, the music, instead of your typical stalking scene, it shouldn't feel scary. The music should feel, it shouldn't feel like I'm being chased. It should feel like I'm chasing. And so 
It's like whatever that means to you that's hard to put to words, but like those are the kind of conversations we had discussing the music. I'm never giving him advice like, here, use, this is how this should sound specifically. It's always my, my direction is about emotion. Somehow he takes that and turns it into magic. This is an incredibly intimate scene where Claire's taking this I want to be Olivia thing way too fucking far. Um, this nightgown was a huge piece that was discussed and completely inspired by the prom dress that Carrie wears. You know, and Brian De Palma's Carrie. It really is like a light pink satin looking long dress. The reason for that dress was tenfold, really. It's like, I love the idea of her putting an old nightgown on and then later, you know, she, she continues to wear this nightgown for multiple scenes to come and has only disassociated further at that point. And I really imagined Claire's headspace being very similar to Carrie's in kind of in the scenes when she's killing me being very similar to how Carrie was looking and feeling when she's like walking out of the prom after, after what she's done. This might be a very uncomfortable scene for many. Um, there's definitely creepy vibes with her going through the underwear drawer. Um, <laughs> it's interesting because this was a challenge for me as a director because I didn't... It wasn't my intention for it to feel creepy in the way of like how you... you if you typically saw somebody creeping through someone's underwear drawer and what that would mean... Um, which I say that and I laugh at myself because it's creepy either way, Jill. Um, but it just wasn't my intention for it to come off like, oh, I want to... I I don't know how to describe it. <laughs> really, from Claire's perspective, this is her her desperate, beyond desperate urge to feel how Olivia feels. I completely, 105,000% understand the interpretation of this scene being that she wants to be with Olivia, that she, you know, has romantic feelings about Olivia. Um, that was never my intention, but I always knew that that would be interpreted because how could you, how could people not take that as an option when, you know, she wears her, puts on her nightgown, goes through her underwear uses her vibrator here um looks at her while pleasing herself um i knew that like there would be the two interpretations does she want to be her or be with her and you know maybe she's not even sure you know a lot's been revealed to me after making this film and other people's interpretations of it and 
The only reason I'm unsure is because I've never been sure of her sexuality. I feel like Claire's so far from being in touch with herself and, and understanding her own identity and her own sexuality that I don't know it either. Like I said earlier, she doesn't know, so how would I know? And there was our our stunt in the movie, jumping out of the window, <laughs> which I'm telling you was weeks of conversations to figure that out. We ended up having a window that was right outside the deck, so if we just cut the deck out of the frame and Najara just dropped down, you know, like two feet out of the window. <laughs> I love this moment. Love the orange, you know, the orange and greens again. This shit's going bad. This was a lot of intense acting for Najara. And when I go back, you know, and watch all of the takes after we were done shooting, it's an emotional, a really emotional thing for me because I realize, you know, what she has as an as an actor, as a performer, has gone through to bring this character to life. And it is just like an overwhelming feeling because in a way it makes me feel feel sad and guilty because she really has to feel that way to to perform it in another way i feel like so blessed to be able to work with someone so talented and and so vulnerable and willing to go there i mean it's just it means so much to me that she would put her heart and soul and emotions into this like she has This is one of my favorite moments in the movie. Emotionally, you know, visually, everything. The sound design. I love it. The echoes you hear of the voices of our previous victims. That was an idea of our sound team, Noise Floor in Chicago. It's never anything I imagined, and it adds so much to the scene. And, you know, they have this... There's like this special quality to this scene in the sound of this this silence. There's this like echo to this scene that provides an extra layer of just insane loneliness. It just feels so empty. Like the sound is perfectly matching like my dream vision for how this, this scene would feel. You know, like I said, her phone call to Olivia was her her reaching out for help. But this this is also a, an attempt. You know, this is, you know, she broke back in the basement. She's trying to find that escape. She's trying to f- get out of this nightmare 
of her own mind just for a minute. That's all she needs. Just a this a fucking minute. <clears throat> that mirror shot there with the, the ring light around it, that is an old mirror that belonged to my grandmother that I've had and my my mom has kept my whole life and we use it in the short film and I knew it had to come back here. I love this mannequin stare off. It's one of my favorites. Here's the scene I was mentioning earlier where we really just leaned heavy into the grittiness. Like, this kill is unlike anything we've seen Claire do. Like, this is totally out of character for her. She's never acted this way in her life. Like, we almost wanted it to feel like, like Claire is gone. Like, this isn't Claire anymore. We don't, I don't know who this is. Um... And kind of the idea from this point on is we never, is Claire is gone from now on. She is permanently disassociated. Yeah, this scene had a lot of that Carrie influence of how Carrie acts at the end of the film, her just whole demeanor. Also a lot of natural born, born killers vibes. I wanted the inside of this apartment and this kill to have that grittiness and that just wild feeling. God, I love how this street looked though. So fucking cool. <laughs> Which let me tell you, it snowed the day we shot that and we actually had snow trucks out plowing snow off the ground because we could not have snow in the movie for we decided <laughs> at that point we'd already established it was not snowing oh look it's me here's our other stunt i had to fall down on a mattress <laughs> which was not easy this scene was so fun to design and plan though like i said we were like this is Totally not Claire. Like, this is your traditional crazy killer. Just out there, maniac style, killing people without any concern for, for not getting caught, for anything. So we really wanted to drag this one out. And I can't tell you how excited I was to do that and get killed. <laughs> I had my friend and editor I've brought up many times, John, actually helped direct the scene. So he kind of just filled in as the second unit director while I was on camera. 
because I could trust him to say like we got what we needed and I didn't allow myself to look at each take because I knew that would take forever and I would comment on things that don't matter. See, Claire is gone. And can I tell you, after we shot this with Cl Najara laughing, eating pizza and blood running all down her face, we were so excited. We were like, you have never been more disturbing and creepy. <laughs> One of my regrets is that I did not make sure Pepper, her chihuahua, was in this scene. Just one more scene with Pepper. Come on. What was I thinking? The woman in the photos is Najara's actual mother in real life, playing her, Claire's mom in the film. As you know, I was saying earlier, the basement and how it mirrors Claire's you know, emotional or character arc. And so here is kind of like the funeral of, of the character of, of the basement. It's like she's going to clean it back up after destroying it and turn it into a memorial. Can I tell you how much I love these little transitions that John did where he just has it look like the camera spun around the whole room and came right back, no cuts Everything now is clean, all the candles lit, looks like a a church scene. And our idea here was that you know, Claire is now doing herself up to, to look like her mother. You know, more leaning into the idea like that she's disassociated ever since the night prior. That, you know, she was pretending to be me, who she had just killed. And she comes home. Now she's turning into her mom to get ready to go to the wedding. They photoshopped those gold earrings onto the picture to, you know, make them look more alike. I'm going to give one secret away. That little insert right there, I think that's the only shot we did later. You know, like we we didn't do any pickups really just because it wasn't an option. We were, it was the pandemic and the world was shut down immediately after we shot the movie. But that little insert of the <laughs> close-up of the flyer is the one thing we had to get and something we actually could get. This church and our, our vision for it was a freaking dream come true. I had, had hoped to find something just old and beautiful. I wanted stone and stained glass. You know, in my like dream, dream, like say I had like a 
five billion dollar budget or something to make this movie okay that's probably way too much money i don't know i would have like you know a huge old catholic church with giant stained glass windows um and the pilgrim church here in kansas city ended up being absolutely perfect for us it's perfect size still had the feeling i wanted the gothic old feeling i wanted this to feel like the end of romeo and juliet Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet from the mid-90s is one of my favorite films and has a crazy amount of influence on this movie in so many ways, from the story to the design, especially this scene. In fact, when I knew, when this, this idea dawned on me to have the movie end in, the wedding, in a wedding scene where she wore the bride's scalp down the aisle in the wedding, I, it was like... A moment for me that was like a light bulb or a fireworks went off in my head I was like this is exactly what I want this will provide me to, to be able to do exactly what I want in this scene because I knew I wanted this like epic theatrical gothic type um ending that was you know like Romeo and Juliet where, where there's the suicide within inside the church and they're surrounded by candles and it's just so tragic and so beautiful that's what I wanted I wanted a, a a scene that provided for a location and a set that could be really beautiful and there could be candles and stone and I was like oh my god if it's a wedding I can do this and I can get that feeling and we can lean into that design and and so this was my version of the, my my small version of the Romeo and Juliet, 1995. Or is that what year it came out? 97? Um, I should know as a psycho fan. Um, but yeah, I love Baz Luhrmann, that director's style and how intricate, you know, like he's just crazy with detail. He has so much color. It's so beautiful. It's so over the top, so theatrical. I wanted to bring that, especially to this scene. Or I mean, you know, the scene that is coming up within the chapel. I will definitely admit that this, this scene leading up to the wedding, all this stuff in the you know bridal suite where everyone's getting ready, getting dolled up was incredibly challenging. Maybe one of the most challenging scenes to like to block out and to figure out how we were going to shoot. Be just really because of the room, we're like this room isn't super exciting. It was one of our most not exciting looks as far as a location goes, and so we just really were trying to figure out how to make it interesting. This connection that Claire makes with the flower girl was important to me. It's it's a small thing in the you know in the grand scheme of the film, but to me it really meant a lot like to show that who she connects to most here is this little girl and I love the idea of the little girl at the end, you know, just smiling at her. I knew that would creep people out for me it was like the little girl doesn't know any better she just 
She doesn't understand what's going on. She doesn't smile because she's a, a psycho killer. She smiles just because, oh, that's my hairstylist up there that did my hair and made me feel special. Um, like they share this this connection. And I got to say that young actor, Vienna Moss is her name, is so incredibly talented. We only, we only had her on set for two days while we shot this whole wedding sequence but it was such a pleasure to work with her and she was so talented that I, I haven't stopped raving about her and I keep telling people her talent is the kind of talent that you you would write a script for her it's that she's that impressive so yeah I'm hoping to work with her again You guys will laugh at me when I say this, but this was my eight mile moment. I even was playing the Eminem song while we were setting it up. Like, here's her like, you only got one chance, one opportunity. She's psyching herself up. I knew I didn't know if people, when they watch this for the first time, are they going to be thinking, what is she going to fucking do now? Who's she going to kill? Is she psyching herself out of doing it or to do it? <laughs> I don't have the answers, quite honestly. Although I never, I always knew that people would anticipate the ending. I wasn't ever trying to like have this, have it feel like a big crazy surprise or reveal. Um, you know, I, I know people know we're watching a horror movie. This is probably not going to have a, a nice sweet ending. Um, also, I wanted to, I wanted to create that tension like, you know something bad is coming and you're just waiting for it. And there's something in, in the knowing that makes it the dread, you know, something special. I always use Texas Chainsaw Massacre as my example for why I, I like to do this. I'm like, or, you know, why I, how I defend it in the writing or whatever when I'm working with people. But I'm like, you know, the movie's called The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. You go into it knowing exactly what you're going to see and it takes nothing away from it. There's no twist, there's no surprise, no reveal. Okay, that's not, the reveal of the cook being part of the family is a thing, but you know what I mean. You know what you're in for and it's the best movie of all time. Hey, I gotta say a little bit something about this mirror scene right here as I'm talking about Chainsaw. <laughs> we shot this through the mirrors like that intentionally to show how they're you know broken up you know earlier in the film we were trying to show these characters slowly coming together through the mirrors through stacked blocking but there they couldn't be further apart you know we're showing them in reflections that they can't even see each other in And here we are. The big moment is coming. This like shooting the club scene was huge for me because I had it was my second big scene with a lot of extras. This one 
way more challenging than the club because of what we were shooting. And yeah, once we reveal the bride and, and Claire underneath the veil, that was quite a thing to organize the chaos of everyone running out and screaming. I could not have done that without my entire like assistant director team, including especially my AD, Tom, who helped figure out a way to, to make the chaos look, you know, not too organized. Because to be honest, we're working with a lot of, all those extras are my friends and my clients and my family. They're not professional actors. A few are, but that takes more detailed directing. So not everyone does the same exact thing at the same moment. So it was quite a challenge to to organize the chaos when everyone should be scared and running away. <laughs> Here we're doing a lot of trickery. We're flipping between each actress in the in the dress after we go past each row. And I just, you know, we just decided we weren't afraid to do that. We weren't afraid if people started to guess at that point, like, wait, was that Claire? Or, oh, no, it's Olivia. Wait, is it Claire now? Like, I really wanted people to start really getting anxious as hell. Like, what what is going on? <laughs> um, and, yeah, this is, this was a, a mother effort of a challenge to edit and do the mute, I mean, everything. Let me tell you, Davis here, the actor playing Charlie, you know, like he he makes this moment work. And I knew how important that was going to be. This role as a whole in the film isn't huge, but this moment is so big that if we didn't have the right person who knew how to handle it, the whole movie wasn't going to work. And I knew Davis could do it. And here's that moment I mentioned with our flower girl. I just wanted to create this, you know, beautiful feeling with that shot when we're looking right at Claire. She's surrounded by candles and flowers, but we also lean towards, you know, a funeral feeling. Like that background looks more like a funeral than it does a wedding. And this idea where she looks right at the screen and then end is something I took from Barry Jenkins' Moonlight or they even do it in Call Me By Your Name. This idea of like if she looked at us for the last second that she would stay with you forever once it goes black. I was never interested in showing what happened next because to me it's obvious. But I... I'll leave it up for you guys to think about. Because who knows, maybe she should come back. <laughs> oh my. Well, that was so much fun. I hope you guys enjoyed listening to this commentary. Maybe I should keep talking through the credits, though. I mean, this this team was a dream come true. I still miss them. You know, we spent so much time together. It was honestly kind of crazy we fell in love with each other 
every day off, I was hanging out with the crew. That is not normal. Normally people are like, okay, we need to decompress. Everyone needs time by themselves. I was so in love. It was so infectious, this, this group. I'm telling you, I spent every second with them. And I'm just so thankful to them, to the experience. The whole thing has been a dream come true. I feel like I was, it's not even fair how lucky I was to work with this group and to have their passion and their dedication and to have the whole help of freaking pretty much the entire city of Kansas City, all these locations you're seeing right now, even like the wardrobe thank yous. We got donated clothes from so many people. Look at this crazy list of background actors. These are my friends and family and clients who came in and filled in the background of the club and the wedding. All this music, you know, our songs played in the in the film. A lot of them are Kansas City artists who I've grown up knowing. And here are our Kickstarter backers. You know, you guys are literally the people who greenlit the movie. We could not have made it without you. You literally paid for us to start making it. And yeah, I mean, we're just so lucky. After all this, we got to get released by Arrow Video, of all people. And now we're on Shudder and all over the place. I'm just so thankful for this whole journey. And I hope you enjoyed it. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Rogue Commentary, a synchronicity production produced and mixed by Sam Ibrahim with music by Oli Oha. We'll be back with another exclusive audio commentary soon, so please subscribe, rate us, and most importantly, tell your fellow film fans that Rogue Commentary is a thing. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube for news about upcoming episodes, and if you have any suggestions for future contributors, email us at david at rogue-commentary.com. Bye! <laughs>